I was born, broken hearted boy, give or take an ounce. And the world would give me a break, waiting ready to pounce. I was born. Hello everybody, my name is Eric Mercier. I am co-owner of Juice Imports, and today we're gonna walk you through the March edition of our wine club. Uh, today in the studio we have our friend Ben, who's gonna introduce himself uh, and offer a completely different perspective on these wines. And uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe you can tell us what you do. And Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, my name's Ben. I am one of the co-founders of Monogram Coffee. We are a Calgary roaster and we have some cafes. Um, my sort of day-to-day -day work is mostly in the roastery. I spend a lot of time roasting coffee, um, cupping different coffees from around the world, and then also in my free time, I'm on the like coffee competition circuit a little bit, both as a competitor and a coach, um, and I'm excited to taste wines from a coffee perspective and probably get a whole bunch of tasting notes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you, can't, you can't get a tasting note wrong. That's like the that's the one really like nice thing about tasting is that it is... Uh, so subjective that it's like if you taste something you're legitimately tasting that thing it may be that nobody else on earth there tastes it <laughs> yeah. like if you're if you're like oh yeah this white wine really tastes like uh you know black plums you're you're definitely tasting that but it's not very useful because nobody else on the planet is tasting black plums so it's like figuring out you know where the commonalities lie i guess but. totally it's like uh you're not it's it's i totally agree it's like you're not wrong but then once in a while, you're almost <laughs> wrong. <laughs> yeah. You come as close as you can be to being wrong. There we for go. Sure. Yeah. Um, cool. So the first wine that we have today, um, this is from Cantina Marlina. Um, this is made by our friend uh, Marlina uh, Paterno. She is down in Sicily. So southern Italy, uh, as far south as you can go. It's actually closer to Africa than it is to northern Italy. And you see a lot of that sort of reflected in um, both in the culture, but in specifically like the, the cuisine um, so you see a lot of things like citrus fruits used in savory dishes. Uh, you see a lot of uh, like dried fruits, um, a lot of aromatic spices um, that you'd see sort of similarly in places like Morocco, for instance, a lot of crossover there. Um, and the wine style is totally different than you'd see in Northern Italy. In Northern Italy, it's quite Germanic stylistically. Um, you know, everything's super clean, super cold, uh, versus in the South, it's, it's again, more similar to what you'd see in um, Northern Africa or Southern France stylistically. So usually fuller bodied wines, wines that are a little bit sunnier. Uh, so those ripe fruit characteristics, um, you know, historically Sicily has been famous for, for bulk wine. So in places like France where, you know, especially in the 1980s and 1990s where they were making garbage wine a lot of the time, they would buy like bulk wine from, from Sicily, blend it into their wine and, and just totally adulterate the, the heck out of it. Um, and so, you know, Sicily only within the last couple of years has actually started bottling more wine than they're selling in tanker truck, which is crazy. <laughs> Um, but this is a really great example of uh, a producer who uh, her father worked for a massive winery, um, then bought this this small vineyard, um, brought his daughters up in the vineyard, and they've taken over now and have gone to organic farming um, into more of a permaculture model and are working almost exclusively with indigenous grape varieties. Uh, so in this case, um, this is a grape variety called Gracanico, um, which is just delightful. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting you mentioned that, and I never related it to cuisine, but 
There's the same divide in northern and southern Italy in terms of espresso styles. Mm. It started to homogenize over time, but the northern espresso was generally roasted a little bit lighter, and southern espresso was quite a bit darker. And I wonder if it has the same sort of connection to cuisine and, and environment. Totally. Yeah, it might be more sort of, again, if you look at sort of like the Mediterranean Sea and the places that are sort of connected to that, whether you have like Turkish coffee, which is obviously like its own sort of like distinct beast, um, but sort of falls more in line with that that sort of southern style uh, of being like intense, um, you know, and maybe that falls in line with sort of I've never tried like North African coffee. If there's like a Moroccan style of coffee or like, I think it falls sort of into the, yeah, that Turkish style again, where like yeah. they're intense, small, short coffees. Yeah. And they've never, I, it'll be interesting to see if they ever make their way to, to North America. Cause, cause often some of the Turkish style is you actually, the water and the coffee are, you drink them together. So yeah. you basically grind so fine that you can consume the ground coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard to make because you're basically eating coffee. Yeah. Um, which <laughs> not everyone does. Um, but I, when it's done well, like it's intense and vibrant and, and really interesting. Um, but it's definitely its own its own thing. Like it's not yeah. espresso. It's, it's not filter coffee. Totally. Um, yeah, this grape variety is really interesting for me. Uh, it's also the grape variety that you'd see in Suave, uh, in Suave, sorry, in in northern Italy. Um, so it's actually grown in both places, but stylistically tends to be quite different whether you're growing it in the north or in the south. Um, and it's one of the few grape varieties that sort of like spans Italy, especially as far as a, a white grape variety. Um, there's 5,000 different grape varieties in Italy. Uh, that's 50% of the grape varieties on planet Earth are all within Italy, wow. which is crazy. Um, but that results in a, in a lot of a sort of regionality. Uh, and so this is one of the few white grape varieties that you see sort of across the board. Um, yeah, stylistically, so this is skin fermented. So th- this sees about a week on skins. Um, it's wild fermented in, um, in concrete, uh, which is like a nice like neutral vessel. Uh, so it's not imparting like flavors of oak or anything like that. You're mostly just getting the flavor of the actual grapes, um, but extended maturation. This is from 2017, uh, which is weird for like a current release mm. white grape wine. <laughs> uh, you don't see that that often. Usually they're like, yeah, let's get it out of here. Um, but they really believe in, in allowing their wines to like sort of mellow, do this more like old school style of winemaking for sure. Um, yeah, flavor profile for me is like, yeah, lots of like sort of like yellow flowers, sort of this like um, this beautiful sort of like plushness to it. It's got this weight, it's got this texture, this waxiness almost to it. Um, yeah, really fun style. I get like um, a lot of stone fruit from it as well. Mm-hmm. Something I always find interesting in coffee, um, we have to be sort of wary of acidity because mm-hmm. it's, it's something that both from coffee quality and roast styles, people are generally used to lower acids. And so I often find myself moving towards like enjoying different acidities in wine because that's, I feel like there's more freedom for a winemaker to make a coffee, a wine that's like super zippy, yeah, rip all your taste buds off, yeah. no enamel, like, <laughs> like invest your shares in a dentist. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think this wine is, is super zippy, but the, I think the acidity lasts for a really long time. And I, mm-hmm. I, when I find coffees like that, I also think it's really interesting because it's like suddenly you have some complexity of acid because obviously different acidities will last for different amounts of time. And so I often find it interesting when you have a wine like this where even now I can still experience that acidity on my palate. Like totally. I really appreciate that in wines when they have 
a long acidity that keeps yeah. your palate alive and you can continue to taste stuff. Totally. Yeah, we often describe acidity in wine as, as being almost like salt. Uh, it's like the thing that allows you to taste all the other flavors in this like really vivid way. It's like a conveyor of flavors as opposed to like an actual flavor itself. Totally. Um, which again is great. And especially, so I, I'm sure this is probably also the case in coffee, but like the hotter the climate, the quicker the acidity declines. Mm-hmm. And so in a place like this, acidity is like super prized. They get, you know, like 350 days of sunshine a year. Uh, it's super hot. They're right on um, like white uh, calcareous soils that basically just like reflect light <laughs> directly into the vines. So their issue is is like over ripeness usually. Yep. And so in a place like that where they're still able to like retain this level of acidity, this brightness, this freshness, this sort of, um, you know, it's, it sort of like draws you into the wine almost um, and leaves you like thirsty for more sort of deal. Um, I feel like that not that the same case in, in coffee where it's like yeah. in that's why you don't want to be growing at like really low altitudes or. Yeah. It, and it's a hard thing that we have where, again, like um, acidity, acidity in coffee, I think is a hard thing because you're trying to balance it all the time. Because mm-hmm. like I think I like that salt comparison where you can't have acid and not have other flavors that that acidity is supporting. So like Kenyan coffees, for example, are very, very acidic, but they're generally they're punchy they have lots of like red fruit and so it all sort of works together generally it is acidity should be prized in coffee because it usually means cooler climate uh, which is generally due to higher elevation so Mm -hmm. they're smaller farms it's harder for them to produce so something that we sort of combat in coffee is that that acidity if it's not if you don't do a good job roasting and brewing it the thing that made the coffee more expensive sometimes is the thing that the customer (laughs) doesn't want especially with espresso yeah like so we actually, and it even affects our buying model sometimes where we will intentionally purchase lower grown coffees for espresso because mm. we, we know that that acidity isn't something that they're going to want, yeah. but I'm not going to put like a bright coffee into a roaster and try and flatten it, Yeah, which is a lot, a lot of times what happens in specialty is they, you purchase a coffee, you haven't planned what you're going to do with it. I guess it's similar to a winemaker where they decide what style of wine they're going to make with that grape. Yeah. Sometimes like a coffee lands in your roaster and you haven't figured out what you're going to do with it. And suddenly you have to do it, roast it as espresso and it was like a really bright coffee. Yeah. You're basically roasting away all the hard work and all totally. and the, and the costs that you have behind it too. Yeah. Um, and I also think the acidity in this wine like really supports all that like fruit that might be too sweet. Because I yeah, also think totally. like the style of this wine does remind me of not like dessert wines, but it has some of those mm. like really nice totally. ripe fruits, but the acid keeps it all alive and, and going. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's like really funny that you that you talk about it that way too. And like we see the same thing in, in wine too, where it's sometimes winemakers get this like super beautifully grown fruit. Like it's just like immaculate fruit that has the potential to really speak to that place. And then they just like manipulate it so heavily in the mm-hmm. winery where it's like, cool. Like you had the potential to really show terroir, show a specific place show why that year was unique, all these sort of things. And you basically just like put a bunch of makeup on it by, you know, putting it through like a ton of new oak, which in itself is a flavor that sort of masks a lot of things, um, you know, that, making the wine a little bit on the sweeter side of things potentially. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we definitely see the same sort of thing of like, you know, you could have a really great base product, but then in the winery, you can mess all that up in like an instant, uh, which is... Is no. that dictated by 
like what's what's pushing wine producers in that direction is it buyers is it where they see that the trends are going definitely yeah like it was a really big thing in like the late 90s early 2000s where um high alcohol sweet really extracted um really like oaky red wines were sort of all the rage and so all these producers that had the potential to make again very nuanced very like pretty wines were taking these amazing sites and making something that was like way more monolithic mm. uh you know th- there was this sort of homogeneousness to the uh, the wines from that particular era and especially now like if you taste those wines now very few of them have aged well <laughs> and like that's the sort of the goal of those high-end wines is like cool you want this to to hopefully be able to to go the distance and yeah they just really didn't and now we've sort of we were talking about this earlier but like sort of that that paradigm shift of like okay cool we've gone as far as uh the pendulum can swing in one direction now we're getting back more to sort of this moderate area of you know okay maybe judicious use of oak and like you know moderate alcohols that can show you know ripeness but still age et cetera, et cetera. so it's we're, we're definitely getting back there slowly and surely because there's a there's a trend right now in coffee producers are starting to ferment coffee more and more mm-hmm. and and the thing that people haven't totally landed on is how much fermentation is, is too much yeah because you start to taste there are like some really common flavors that all coffee if you ferment it enough will start to taste like that yes. if you go completely too far basically what it tastes like is soy sauce yeah um i don't know if you've had naturally processed coffees that have that like no, it's a it starts no. to get into umami yeah and if there's a little bit of it and you can still taste other characteristics of the coffee it's like really cool yeah but what's happening is some people are just pushing it so far that it all tastes the same totally um, and it's it's a really tricky thing and it, it's actually mostly to blame from uh green buyers yeah. where they've gone to producers and say hey you should make a natural and you should put it in a bag and you then you should put it in the sun for like a week and so there's no one to blame but ourselves but yeah. <laughs> but it i you start to lose some of that sense of place that mm-hmm. i think um great wines and great coffees have yeah definitely um the other thing too that we were, that i wanted to draw back on that you said was was that the reason why you would maybe prize a coffee like that high acidity that brightness that freshness is like the exact reason why some people would like dislike it Mm -hmm. and that's the exact same with like high-end wine too where you're like cool this high-end wine is high-end because it has tons of structure whether that be like tannin that like sort of mouth drying effect which is like really prized in a wine that's meant to age but maybe you spent a hundred dollars on that bottle of wine thinking that you're getting a hundred dollars worth of deliciousness out of it when really you're getting like a hundred dollars of like ageability and like yeah. specificity and like really amazing farming you're not getting like deliciousness for that price and if those are not the things that you're you're hunting for then you didn't need to necessarily like spend that money or maybe there was like another style that was that was more sort of geared towards your palate um or at least where your palate is at a particular time in your tasting career yeah um, like because sometimes i'll open a bottle of wine and i'll drink it and i'm like oh i should have made supper because like this would <laughs> taste so good with food and it's yeah. just, that's just not what I'm having. And and in coffee, it's the same thing where I think coffee has a further ways to go with education. But um, like a, a style of coffee that's really expensive right now is, is Gesha coffee. And the yeah. profile of that is like floral, super citrusy, lots of acid. Yeah. And so if you don't like that, that's totally fine. But I think something that the coffee industry needs to do, and, and it's probably the same with wine, is like educate people where it's like, 
you don't have to if you don't like drinking expensive coffee or more expensive wines that are are meant for aging or ha have lots of acid that's totally fine but like let's find the style of coffee that you like or the style of wine that you like let's help you start to know what to look for on labels and then we're gonna yeah. find something you really like if you want like a chocolatey low acid coffee that's grown really well and like a fair price was paid for it i love that i think that's great yeah um and but we just need to we haven't done the best job of like sort of helping guide consumers to to also not feel embarrassed that they maybe they just want something that's low acid and i'm totally, totally. down with that yeah we yeah it's something that i've been thinking about lately too is like uh like apothic is like the number one selling wine in in north america as far as i know and it's a uh like sweet sort of like medium plus bodied red wine uh, you know, it's got about 22 grams per liter of sugar, um, which again, no, they obviously don't put that on the label, but if you do the analytics on it, it's like 18 to 22 grams, depending on what batch it is. Cause it's not really like a vintage thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's really popular and there's nothing wrong with it being popular. Like people like those flavors. And if they like those flavors, like that's totally fine. Like their, their tastes are just as valid as anybody else's. Just like if somebody wants that, that coffee to taste like soy sauce, like I guess that's like totally valid yeah. as well, uh, you know, regardless of what happens. And I think us in the natural wine industry should be like, cool, that's awesome. We can do that too, but without all the manipulation and we pay the growers an appropriate amount for, for that fruit. Sure, it's gonna cost a little bit more money. Like I can give you apothic at like, $30 a bottle instead of $20 a bottle. Um, but that was like farmed ethically, made without additives. All the sugar in it is like a natural sugar that yep. came from like the, you know, from leftover from fermentation. Like we can make an apothic naturally. I don't think that that's impossible necessarily. It would be hard for sure. It would take some work. Um, but th there's no reason we couldn't do that. Totally. So, and even just move in that direction. Like, yeah. I think you, you don't have to you don't have to completely copy it. And I think even if you look at like um, like different pops, like Coke is the most popular pop of oh, yeah. all time. But at the same time, there's been small like soda producers that are able to do really good things. Like I think mm -hmm. of like Annex Ales makes like really oh, good yeah, root beer. For sure. It doesn't taste like A&W root beer, no. but it's yeah. close enough that like, if you like A&W root beer, you're gonna like this as well. And, yeah. and I think in coffee, that same thing can happen where it's like you don't have to fully move in this one direction mm -hmm. but you should try and try and have something where like if if that's the the style and the flavor profile that they appreciate can you offer something because in the past especially in specialty it was like you like that i'm gonna tell you what you're gonna like next and it's <laughs> yeah. this thing yeah. and it's like <laughs> it doesn't work so like we need to move in the direction it's like you like that this is really really close yeah um, and i and i really hope that you like it Totally. And just, yeah, that's the other thing too, is just trying to come up with this way of, um, you know, validating people's uh, experiences because it's like, that's, it's totally fine that they feel that way. And you can't just be like, oh, it's wrong to like that. Uh, it's like, oh, cool. Like, that's great that you like that. This is why other people like this other thing. And you, you sort of show them the, you know, the validity of these other flavors. Cause that's the thing is a lot of the times, you know, maybe somebody went to one party one time and some guy was piping off about being like, oh, yeah, like I won't drink anything under 14 percent alcohol. Uh, you know, it's got to be full bodied. That's how you know it's the good stuff. And you put that like little thing in your brain and you're like, that's the only information I have about wine. And that's what makes me feel comfortable when I go into a wine shop is that one piece of information I have. So I repeat that piece of information and then drink wines that I don't like for the rest of my life <laughs> because I was told one time that that's like the best style when really 
you know, and then you taste something that's different than that, and you're like, oh, that can't be good, even though I like it more than this other thing, uh, because I've been told one time that it isn't, and then I reinforce that over and over again. And that's the thing is like we we need to come up with a better way of being like, hey, like all these flavors are okay, and you should try them all, and then you should actually find out where you fall on that spectrum as opposed to like where you've been told you should fall. Totally. Uh, it's like, and it goes both ways too. It's, it's not just like, you know, those guys in the coffee shop being like, you have to have this. Uh, <laughs> like like a, a check that I, I do on myself and I look at other people too. If you like got in a time machine and you went back 10 years and you, you met yourself when you were just starting in wine or in coffee, would you be a dickhead to that person? Yeah. And I think often the answer is yes. That totally. you would like look at the thing that they like and you would totally shit on it. Yeah. And I and I think like that's the best way to look at it. When I think about like when how I started in coffee or like how my business partner started in coffee, we didn't necessarily like the stuff that we like now. Yeah. And I, I think it's fine to say like I don't really that's not my that's not my jam anymore. Mm-hmm. I and I have reasons behind it, but also you have to look back and like would the way that you treat consumers now totally turn off younger Ben or younger Eric yeah. like from the industry? And I think often it would be. Like you would be a total totally. dick to your old self. Yeah, yeah. That's actually such a good way of thinking about it. Yeah, it's, uh, that, yeah, I remember, so I haven't thought about this in a while, but like honestly like a year ago before this whole shutdown happened, uh, at the events that I was going to and, and pouring wine at, one of the checks that I had was always... Um, why am I telling this person this information? Am I telling it because I think they're going to have a better experience or am I telling them it because I want them to know that I know this information? Yeah. Uh, and that's something that I started checking myself all the time where I'm like, okay, hey, is this going to add to their experience of, of like drinking this thing? Like, and in some cases, yes, for sure. Like maybe knowing a cool story about the, the you know, winemaker is going to help or maybe knowing like, oh, this is why this is different than something else and, and explaining the technical qualities of that. Is great but other times I was like no I'm fully just doing this because I want this person to think that I'm knowledgeable and then like trust me maybe more when really that's maybe not the best way of, of doing it or for my own ego frankly like it's it's super hard to remove your ego when you're you're doing something like this in yeah. some, a customer service sort of position Eric the tech sheet Mercier oh yeah seriously <laughs> I am honestly like from my very first job ever I was always like the PK guy like the product knowledge guy was always like this is how i sell stuff is by knowing more about it than literally every other (laughs) human being on earth and i've just i've followed that my entire life like i take solace in in uh like information yeah and it's just like i don't know why that's a thing but it's it's definitely a thing so (laughs) sweet um yeah any closing thoughts on the wine super tasty like i think the other thing too is um to have like it has quite a bit of body in my opinion Mm -hmm. um but it doesn't make it again i feel like if it wasn't for that acid it would be like a sweet flabby desserty type thing totally but that acid makes the body lively it ties all the fruit together yeah like it's it's actually like really held together super well and i feel like it's all in a knife's edge a bit definitely like yeah that (laughs) like that body and that that style of fruit could easily be something that's just flabby and and super yeah, sweet, totally. but it's all held together really really well. Yeah, this was a complete mind blower for me because like this is like just over thirty bucks, like it's like thirty one dollars. Oh, yeah. um, so I think it's great price to quality ratio for for what it is. Um, 
And yeah, I opened a bottle of it for the first time in a while, um, like maybe like three weeks ago. And I texted like Mark, like my business partner. And I was just like, have you tried this recently? Like this is crazy good. And I'm super excited about it, you know, going into wine club because I think a lot of people are gonna like this style. We've also been like harassed a lot about like putting more orange wines in wine club. And yeah. this is sort of like, again, borderline orange wine. So I feel like it, uh, you know, will appease a lot of people. It's like orangey yellow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's yeah. It doesn't really have like a specific. All right. So next up here, um, we've had a couple wines from this producer in the wine club in the past. This is made by our friend Franz Venninger. Um, Franz Venninger is like one of the most thoughtful winemakers I've ever met in my entire life. He is crazy intellectual. Um, he is such a philosopher he doesn't take anything for face value he really thinks about every single thing that he does analyzes it and then decides whether or not he should go forward with it whether he should find a new methodology or borrow a methodology from somebody else um and he's just really dedicated to his vineyards and, and sort of like the history of the area um and so this is really an ode to the place that he he lives so he's in austria uh right on the border of austria and hungary which all used to be the same region up until fairly recently um the part of, of Hungary that he farms in um, used to be called German-speaking West Hungary because there was that's sort of like where the German population was. Like it wasn't as homogenous as it sort of is now where it's like, oh, Hungarians live on that side of the border and Germans live on this side of the border. It was like the German population of Hungary lived sort of in this area. Um, and so because his family has always lived in this sort of this region that spans two different countries, uh, he's done a lot of odes to, to sort of that history. Oh, and cool. this is exactly that. So this is called Ponjikta. Um, Ponjikta is uh, what they used to call the German farmers in this area, which basically means like bean eaters, uh, <laughs> because between the rows of vines, they would um, plant like vegetables and most of them would oh, cool. be like beans. And the whole idea behind that is that uh, beans are like nitrogen fixers. So they take nitrogen out of the air and put it into the soil, which grapevines need. And so not only are you getting delicious beans uh, for all the local dishes, there's like a really good like bean pastry that's like not super far off from like a savory version of something that you'd see in Japan, like for like a little like bean, like red bean like the pastry. Bean, the bean bun thing. Totally, yeah. It's like a savory version of that uh, in this area. And like weird like kind of bean muffins. Like I know it sounds very horrible. <laughs> Fine, but um, I don't know how else to describe them, but they're super delicious. Um, and so, yeah, he wanted to do an ode to that. So he's like, I'm, he's like, I'm sort of like Hungarian German simultaneously uh, in this area of Austria. And he was like, I want to do an ode to, to you know, the bean eaters uh, really cool. back in the day. So yeah, this is a blend of Pinot Noir and Zweigelt. Um, he is using this as a replacement for his old. Um, uh, wine called Mises Schillem, which was like our number one selling wine of all time. Uh, he actually isn't making that wine anymore, which is tragic. It's always the best when one of your producers takes the <laughs> best selling wine ever yeah, exactly. and uh, stops making it. Um, but he was like, I like this wine better. I like this style better. And it's like just brighter, fresher, juicier. Um, so yeah, we brought it onto the market uh, about a month ago and we're already sold out. Uh, and so wow. we've, we've just had to, Mark and I were talking earlier today and we're like, hey, how much are we ordering? And we looked at our order and we're like, yeah, we need to order like three times that amount because it's just too tasty. So, mm. oh yeah. Yeah. 
That's really good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, one of the things that I thought I would bring up is um, from a analytic perspective, like looking at the actual like physical composition of coffee versus wine, it's really interesting to see the things that we prize in both and the things that like are not prized. And one thing that's like um, prized in wine is like tannin, uh, that like little hint of like bitterness that really like smooths out the fruit versus like that is an evil, ugly word totally. in the coffee industry. And you guys are all really obsessed with like sweetness, which isn't <laughs> which sugar is related at all. Uh, yeah. And it's like in wine, people are like horrified by sweetness. They're like, oh, I, I won't drink a sweet wine, even though sweet wines are, are really, really tasty. But people have like sort of like this bad thing. So I was wondering if you can maybe like speak to again what's prized in a coffee but specifically talking about sort of like the balance of this perceived sweetness where that sweetness yeah. comes from i guess and uh and and the relationship of bitterness to to coffee it's it's super weird and i think often it lets me it's why i escape into wine a bit i might go on a, like a, a slight rant uh, please okay? do yeah totally <laughs> depending on how much memory is on your computer um <laughs> so basically you're totally right where like um, any sort of dryness in coffee is considered a bad thing. Um, mm-hmm. There, you don't want any of it. And it's even, like often competitions, they're not the be-all, end-all, but they're a bit of a bellwether that signals what's coming. And in the past, in competitions, you could describe something as having like a pleasant dryness, and we would often reference wine. But as time's gone on, we've all sort of admitted that this is not something you want. And some of it, I think, comes from like the reason that it's there. So like if something is, is can, like... Um, attributed to a fault or to often as a coffee gets older it starts to get taste more mm-hmm. dry and so the part it, it's something that's interesting where like many of the tastes in everything that we prize it's because it's not necessarily because it's good but because it's rare yeah and like so i have coming back to like gesha coffee versus like brazilian coffee brazilian coffee tastes like chocolate and nuts mm-hmm. and we as a coffee cupper we score those down and why do we score that down because we don't like chocolate no, like, but it's because we know that it's more rare to have something that's floral. And yes. so that's always sort of combating in my mind. And the other thing that is a big difference between wine and coffee is coffee has a very small set of flavors that are considered acceptable. Mm. Um, and actually, one of our baristas a few years ago did a, a presentation on this where it's like the savory flavors in coffee are pretty much a no-go. Yeah. Um, something like tobacco no go like there we have a like we want our coffee to taste like fruit a little bit of nuts even you can start to get into spice and people are going to start to score that down and i would love to see but it's basically really limited regions so Mm -hmm. like um there's a like um the eastern pacific area they have coffees that have a bit more spice that are a bit more like zippy and and interesting and we score them down because we have this set of flavors. I, it really is sort of gatekeeping on the mm-hmm. coffee industry. It's like, these are the flavors that will give you a high score that we're willing to pay for. Anything else, we're not going to score yeah. well. And it was actually interesting. So like this, Jill's the barista, and she went to a regional competition and basically had a coffee that was a bit savory and, and talked about the fact that like, like, why is this necessarily considered bad? Mm-hmm. And then had bad well not bad but didn't have great flavor scores as a result because they didn't <laughs> they didn't like the savory coffee and and so i we're still have a lot of work and i understand there's times where like if the if the if it's due to a, a defect 
yeah then you shouldn't really be scoring it well because like we can all make defective products mm -hmm. but if it's just because you think that that flavor shouldn't be there then we really need to start talking about it um and so i long story short i i often really enjoy wines because i can appreciate a note that technically you should be scoring a coffee down um, as a yeah. result um, and so like this wine for example and but it makes me really bad at those notes that are not fruit notes totally because like on the nose i get something that is not fruit like i don't know it's like yeah it, like because there's there's like common notes where it's like like wet slate or yeah, like totally. or woolly notes there's something yeah. in between there for me yeah where it's got something that's not fruit but i'm really bad at not fruot because yeah. like basically wine people have a list of notes that have things you would never put in your mouth but you <laughs> but you drink <laughs> yeah oh my goodness i feel like that's exactly how i feel every time i'm talking to a coffee person and i describe anything that's not a fruit and they're they, horrified they, yeah totally they're like and they immediately go to the cup and they're just like oh my god i hope that's not in there and i'm like no no i mean like it in a good way it's adding yeah. a lot of complexity a lot of intrigue yeah i had this conversation with my friend like probably f like four or five years ago where um he had sent me the, this article on on coffee and like on coffee faults and and different things and i was just like man like uh, I like a lot of those flavors that you're including on yep. there. And I think in like the smallest amount, they may be really interesting. And it was things like ginger and like nutmeg and things like that. And I was like, those sound like super cool. Sign me up. Or like mushroom. Mushroom was like the big one where yep. they're like, that's like definitely moldy. That's definitely blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, yeah, like wine, a lot of it is made with partially moldy grapes. Like the grapes are not super photogenic all the time. We have like <laughs> botrytis, which is um, a type of rot uh that happens that actually concentrates the flavor but definitely also adds like sometimes a white truffly quality sometimes just like a pure like fungal quality but in this in small amounts it could be super interesting and some of the most expensive wines in the world are made exclusively from grapes affected with this rot like mm -hmm. things like uh tokai um tokai azu for instance or um sauterne they have to be made exclusively from these rotten grapes and somebody just decided at some point like you know what, like, let's include this flavor in, in where the acceptable is. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about it as well, like the, the idea of this sort of like gatekeeper vibe where unless it's a flavor that's like common in like North American or European sort of like food culture, yeah. then it's immediately a fault. Yeah. And that's the way that it is in wine as well. And we're doing a ton of work right now to sort of counteract that and get more um, sort of indigenous populations, uh, you know, involved in sort of creating the lexicon for how we talk about these products and being like, hey, why are we alienating literally a bigger percentage <laughs> of the world via our flavor, like our flavors for being like, this is good and this is bad. Like it's, you know, and it's hard deciding what's a fault. Yeah. Like, have, have you come across that in the, in the coffee industry where there's certain things that you would have considered a fault, but now that you're reassessing what flavors should be included where you're like maybe like maybe that isn't a fault if it's in small amounts or like it adds intrigue it may be like a fault quote unquote but yeah in um, small amounts so there's we have like a coffee flavor wheel that yeah. was built by one of the coffee associations that is very north american in mm -hmm. in reference and even like what they did recently is they they created like a reference example for all those ones so mm -hmm. i think like one of them i think it might be one of the berries, the reference is like you, if you want to know what they're talking about, you go and buy like a Smucker's jam and that's yeah. a reference, which is so 
North American. <laughs> so North American. And, and then also within it, like they have like a fault section where some of the some of the notes are, are things that might be accepted in other cultures. Yeah. And there's I can't remember there's a there's a barista right now that's working on trying to move this flavor wheel and create more regional versions. Yeah. Because there's fruits on there that that maybe no one has access to. So I think I also I think ultimately it has to go in a bunch of directions where like you have regional flavor wheels mm-hmm. and then like you have maybe maybe there are some notes that are more universal but i was even trying to think of this in my head where it's like i was reading about orange juice and like com- large-scale commercial orange juice is fully manufactured they get people oh, yeah. to add different aromas and stuff totally and they'll add a completely different set of aromas on a different culture so i was trying yeah. to think like oh you should go buy an orange it's all the same it's like no it's totally not the same <laughs> yeah and then the other thing that's coming up in coffee is um the coffee uh, arabica yeah. is not super genetically diverse in North America or in, sorry, in the Western Hemisphere. And so what's happening is diseases are starting to ravage a lot of different countries. Yeah. And what they're starting to do is they're starting to, to crossbreed Kafia Arabica with Robusta. Mm-hmm. And Robusta is a completely different species that has a completely different set of genetics and tasting notes. And so I'm, we, st- we are purchasing some of those hybrids and they're really interesting because basically mm-hmm. the thing I compare it to is if you ate chicken all your life, and suddenly you have duck, it's going to be weird. Like, it's going to be gamey, it's intense, yeah. even cook it a different way, but it's interesting. And so we we have some some coffees now that have notes that previously in the past you would have maybe said are defective, yeah. but what's happening is you're just tasting a different species. But mm-hmm. what's going to happen is more and more of that is going to be necessary to keep coffee alive. Totally. And I've seen interviews with green buyers where they're like, I've never had a good Robusta hybrid. I will never buy one. And it's like, you go, you better catch up. You better get your palate on that because, yeah. or find ones that you like because that's where coffee's going. And either you yeah. you start purchasing those coffees and start in, in enjoying those notes or you're totally going to be left behind. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we, we see that in wine too, where it's like certain historic regions are becoming too hot or too dry or the soils are becoming uh, too salty to grow great varieties that are popular so you can't grow you know pinot noir chardonnay cabernet sauvignon you know like the top eight whatever great varieties that people go into a wine store and they ask for um you can't grow those there anymore so if you want to keep drinking wine from you know barossa uh in australia you're going to need to get used to nero davila you're going to need to get used to uh gricanico um you're going to need to see these grape varieties that are uh, have grown up in these different places and are way less susceptible to, you know, those high heats, um, you know, uh, and all the other different factors. And we also see in, as we push north and the focus is on less spraying, because that's the thing is like, again, organic is great as long as you're doing it right. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be a really good thing, but you know what's even better? Not having to spray. Yeah. Uh, at all. And so you can actually plant grape varieties that are like no spray grape varieties. Just they're not popular yet and they don't have the name and the cachet that Cabernet Sauvignon does. So natural winemakers are, are, are thinking like, hey, like maybe we should move towards some of these hybrid grape varieties that are no spray grape varieties, even though they make wines with flavors that are maybe slightly different than what we're used to. Maybe we can adapt to these new flavors. Uh, I think it's a super interesting conversation and, and there's a lot of potential, but ultimately the consumers need to get behind it if it's yeah. going to be a thing. Um, well, also in coffee, Arabica um, doesn't like too hot, doesn't like too cold. 
Robusta and some of those hybrids can grow in more regions. Mm -hmm. And so they're also working on, on producing coffees that have better cup qualities, even in hotter climates, mm. which is really cool because suddenly you have like a whole, a whole new set of areas and countries where they might produce really interesting coffee. Totally. Um, like we're just starting to get into it um, on the decaf side. We, we started to try and source better decafs. And the next decaf that we have is from India. We've mm. never had an Indian coffee. Whoa. I, I cupped it. Again, it has some notes that like maybe some people wouldn't wouldn't like, but I think it's a really interesting coffee. And that's only happening because you're starting to be able to get into some some plants that can survive in places that old ones couldn't. And so I think yeah. if you view it as exciting, we're suddenly like, there's a new region rather than like, oh, the thing that I loved is now gone. Yeah. Um, then I think it can be really interesting. Totally. And that's, yeah, that's the other thing too, is that like we'll end up with less of those scenarios where the thing that you really loved is gone if we have more diversity because we won't end up with these sort of monocultures that can be so susceptible to to things like virus. Because, um, yeah, again, we, we see that in the wine industry as well where it's, you know, having more biodiversity in the actual vineyards, but also having tons of different species planted all over the place it prevents the spread of these viruses because certain vines are gonna be susceptible and other ones aren't. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess it would totally make sense to have, you know, th that greater genetic spread yeah. for sure. Like a, something that, that's really scary. So Brazil, by far the largest producer of coffee in the world. Hmm. I, last I read, I think it's 98% of their, their variety is, a, is directly related to Tipica or Bombron, which are the most common ones. They have yeah. almost no genetic diversity. So like all it would take wow. is one one disease that can wipe it out and suddenly Brazil's gone. And then yeah. that totally messes everything up. And, totally. Um, yeah. It's super scary. Hmm. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about before we get too, too deep into this, uh, this podcast, uh, <laughs> just because like there's actually technically one more wine, but we're actually going to interview the winemaker, hopefully. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. So hopefully you have a Zoom call tomorrow or maybe tonight because I'm really bad at dates. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was was the idea of, um, of price and how we can do a better job of educating consumers about where their dollars are going and why um, demanding products at a certain price leads to sort of this inequality leads to cutting corners and and you know those corners usually being passed on to sort of like the the lowest on the chain which is usually the the farmers um it's one of those things that I, i've talked with a lot of sort of coffee professionals about and and been like cool like why is it still five dollars for a cup of coffee like how is that possibly sustainable um can we get up to a point because like the the diversity in wine prices is pretty drastic you can buy mm -hmm. a bottle for $10 and you can buy a bottle for $10,000 versus in coffee, like you can basically buy like somewhere between like, you know, $2 and 50 cents. And like, you know, you guys have had some crazy stuff on where it's, you know, maybe $7 for like a cup of coffee or something like that. But it's like that spread is not the same. No, nope, not even <laughs> uh, close. And so for me, like I'm very willing to spend that sort of money. Like I know you're doing your, your sort of limited releases once a month that are a little bit more expensive. And, and obviously some of that gets passed on to the farmer. Um, what do you think the future of, of that is and, and how can we do a better job of educating the consumer on like this is why it costs this much and if you want the farmer to be paid a living wage you have to pay that much money for it like, what's your sort of I guess thoughts on that yeah I think coffee finds itself in a really weird spot in that um, we are an everyday drink 
Mm-hmm. And I know there are probably some listeners that wine is the same for you, but but basically, it it so basically that price gets compounded quite a bit. So there's people that have two coffees a day, mm-hmm. and so the difference between like a three dollar coffee, they're at six bucks a day, versus a ten dollar coffee, they're twenty dollars a day. Yeah. Um. And so I think that's one of the hardest things. Um. And then the other thing is that the I think within wine, there's it's more apparent what is really great wine and what is is more common everyday wine and mm-hmm. in coffee like i fully view one of my competitors as starbucks yeah even though that's like it's starting to approach like I, I think they do a lot of things right but it's starting to approach like more fast food style yeah and so it's almost like we we don't even have a market to be in right now because we're still just trying to fight amongst ourselves a yeah. good example like in in Australia, Starbucks was not successful, and so they are able to charge higher prices because they were able to sort mm. of build their own market. I think it's a huge issue, though, because basically what's happening is there there is not a market for coffees that are that are priced higher, and and it's something that we are trying to to do. So basically, we have like an exceptional line now, and we to be totally like honest, we barely make money on it. If we yeah. if we sell out, <laughs> if we have a roast. We sell out of it. We barely make money in it because what we're trying to do right now is actually just build the market. Mm-hmm. So I think to, to sort of answer your question, I think that it almost doesn't even exist right now. There's not really yeah. that ability to have conversations. It's it's basically like if the roasters being fair, they're going to eat a lot of that cost. They're gonna yeah. they're gonna buy coffee that's well well priced and fair, but they are unable to pass that cost onto the consumer. It just lowers yeah. the margin for specialty coffee. Totally. And this is I think something that when people look at coffee they often think that i'm going to open a cafe it's going to make lots of money and what they realize is that the money there's almost no money in in cafes there's a small amount of money in roasting and so something that i think needs to move forward is is trying to build that market it's something we're trying to do but we've already had actually blowback so we were featuring coffees mostly from panama from an award-winning farm it was really easy to talk about we featured this the on Sunday I'm gonna roast a coffee that's from Costa Rica. It is a, a Gesha variety that that mill actually produced a coffee that had the highest score in a coffee brewing competition. It beat like fifty other coffees in the world. Yeah. And we had someone on Instagram that said, This is a Costa Rican Gesha, it is not a Panamanian Gesha, because that's sort of like the yeah. the famous Gesha is from Panama. How can you charge this much? You must be you must be massively marking this coffee. Yeah, you us. must be just. Yeah, you know, you drive up in your Rolls Royce. To yeah, you that. must be. Yeah. You must be screwing over the farmer and passing that on to us. And that's the other thing too is that mm-hmm. I think right now, expensive coffee is viewed as that's the unfair one. That's the uh, like like if I'm you must be marking it up too much. It's too expensive when yeah. really it's the cheap coffees that are the unfair ones. Yeah. But we we we're not even at that point where you can have those conversations. And it got to the point where like eventually. I said like this is what we paid for the coffee. Like, yeah. like go and look, and especially with with Monogram right now, because we are, we really believe that um, that these coffees should be available in Canada. The thing yeah. I compare it to is imagine I there's lots of great wines that are at affordable prices, but imagine if there was no Grand Cru wines. There's like yeah. basically at forty bucks, that's where it cut off. There was nothing else. Yeah. It doesn't mean there wouldn't be any great wines, but there'd be some experiences that would not be available to you as a wine drinker. Yeah, That is Canada right now. There are totally. lots of great coffees, but if you want to taste stuff that's like pushing the limit or you want to try something, 
that is like sort of rare, it's really hard to find in Canada. You basically yeah. have to go outside. And that's what we're trying to do. We're eating most of the costs on it. So like now is the time to buy our coffees. Yeah. Because once there's a market, don't worry, we're gonna market up. But right now we're just trying to make it. So like yeah. we're we're saying like if you buy a coffee, like it's almost at the point where like if we sell the whole roast, we're we're happy. But we're not really I think that what people don't understand right now is specialty coffee generally we're just selling it to, to stay in business and i think that's yeah. a lot of small craft businesses in canada mm -hmm. where it's like we don't have these giant populations that can support the niche thing and so i i i wish more consumers would sort of it's it's sort of like building trust amongst your customers and i think yeah. monogram has a lot of that and i think juice does too where it's like they trust that they are that their money is going to the right places and totally. uh, the other thing is in coffee it's really hard to fully trace it because mm -hmm. in coffee you have um large-scale producers where they do their own export they have a website they have instagram yeah. you can text them you have people that sell to a mill you have producers that are so small that it's going through a bunch of hands and then on top of all that is you have pickers which are generally mm -hmm. their migrant laborers laborers yeah. and it's something that is really hard to get in coffee and we need to push more for is the traceability and what the actual picker is getting paid. Yeah. Because sure. I think I think coffee for a long time created this, like we really um, misused producers and said, you know, you need to buy our coffee because the you need to help the producer. And, and sometimes the producer is like a large business and they're doing fine. Sometimes the producer is in a really tough, a tough position. And so mm -hmm. we've painted with such a broad brush that I need to, we also need to fix that and like be really upfront. Like, this producer is in great shape. It's like your money still helps them, but like yeah. I'm not gonna paint that same story where like you you need to buy their coffee. And yeah. then there's some there's some regions where it's like your your money is really is really keeping this region afloat. And I think the problem with all products as we're learning, especially recently, is that they're super complicated systems. Mm -hmm. And so they're not they're not as easy to like have like you can't explain the whole problem on the label. And so it really requires larger conversations. And and it I think it's really hard as a consumer too, where like totally. it takes a lot of research to really know what you're buying and to stand behind the things that you've purchased. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I, I find myself in that position all the time where it'll take me like six weeks to buy a set of sheets for my bed because yeah. I, I'm just like, oh my goodness, like, how am I really like gonna digest all this? I'm like, okay, is it okay for these to be made in Romania? Like, is that like yeah. factory okay? Or like, where's the where's the actual like uh, like linen coming from? Because it's grown in a different place than it's actually made in. And so it's like trying to figure out all these these chains, you know, it, it takes an an incredible amount of time on the consumer and you know, we've just gotten so used to not having to do that. It's not that we're incapable of doing it and that like we won't eventually like adjust to the amount of work that we have to do to understand the, these, you know, production chains. But at the moment, it's like a shock to the system, um, you know, trying to, to navigate all these things because there isn't a ton of transparency. Um, even if you want to know, you can't find out in a lot of ways. Uh, and not only that, but it, again, I think this speaks to what you were just saying is like we we're the, in the same boat where we take a really low markup because people aren't willing to pay more for our wines than a regular wine, but we believe more in this particular product. So yeah. we're like, cool, 
ours costs maybe like seven euros from the winery versus another importer is getting like a five dollar wine, uh, five euro wine from the winery, and we're wholesaling them for the same price because we're like, cool, you're still not willing to spend more than this amount of money on that bottle of wine, which again is fair if you've gotten used to paying a certain price for it, but you know our marketing advantage is like hey like this is comes from you know a farm that's farming without synthetic pesticides and herbicides it's just a small family run thing they're not using any additives in the winery um and so the wine ends up being the same price on the shelf we're just making less money off of it yeah um luckily the farmer is still making you know their their extra little share on it which covers their costs at best um but it's one of those things where you want to push the market until people are willing to spend two extra dollars a bottle or five extra dollars a bottle or whatever it is so we can start making the same markup as everybody else but you know in the interim that's fine like we'll, we'll figure out a way of dealing with it but but i also think that's the also the role of like really good restaurants and wine bars and cafes where like something that we always try to do too is if we have an expensive coffee it is also on the brew bar so mm-hmm. if you can't if you really if you don't think you can buy a 50 dollar bag of coffee or 30 dollar bag of coffee um, but you still want to try it mm-hmm. i think that's something that i really appreciate from from good shops and good restaurants and good wine bars is where it's like if and if I can't afford that bottle of wine, but I can get a glass for obviously there's still a markup on the restaurant has to oh, mark yeah. it up. But I think that's the cool thing and, and something that we should really appreciate and support is where you can still access it, have a glass, really appreciate it, but you don't have to, to purchase the whole bottle sometimes. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, and then the last thing that I want to talk about, because I just have a million questions, <laughs> is like this idea of like incentivizing farmers to make like a new quality level of product um, because again like the 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 price for coffee is like again still obviously very like low compared to other you know compared to luxury goods basically yeah. um, do you think that if a farmer had an extra like twenty thousand dollars an acre they could make like grand cru level coffees or do you think that it just sort of maxes out at some point or do we just like not know yet I think we don't totally know yet. So mm-hmm. a lot of the a lot of the stuff that's labeled like anaerobic and, and this and that, literally right now they're putting it in a bag and sealing the bag. And it's working. <laughs> like I'm yeah. I don't wanna I don't wanna discount it. I don't wanna like yeah. I'm I don't I'm not I'm not trying to like uh, make fun of anyone, but that's the level that we're at right now where even something like that is a new thing that mm-hmm. people are experimenting with. So I think that there is a, like a massive um, amount of range in terms of like being able to provide to me it, it's more uh, it really is on the money side because so- something that I also see a lot of people do is and you see this a lot where it's like um, a roaster will talk about how they went and visited the producer and like gave them a bunch of advice on how to and thankfully I think I think because wine often it's it's in more like like European countries it doesn't I, f- I feel like it doesn't happen as much but you see it happen a lot in coffee. It's like, we helped this person. It's like, no, you went to the farm for maybe a week. They're there 365 days a year. Do not take credit for something that they did that you're like, oh, we told them to do this and now the coffee is better. Like, I see that happen a lot. I think there is, uh, if more money is going towards these projects, I think like the infrastructure behind producing coffee is often a limiting factor. Like a great example is coffee needs to dry to between... Like in Africa, it's around 9%. In 
in Central and South America, it's, it's generally between 10 and 12% moisture content. Mm-hmm. Um, but that requires you to spread the coffee out either on like a raised bed. It's basically like a, a, a wooden frame with mesh or yeah. on a concrete patio. But that's sort of the backlog. So what happens is they end up having to put the coffee into mechanical dryers. There's a backlog mm-hmm. there, so they have to run the dryers hotter than they should. It damages the coffee. And so the, the farms that have more money, even something like that, if they can take their time on drying or they have the ability to purchase land where they can dry their coffee, something yeah. as small as that could be huge. Totally. That's not even getting into like suddenly, rather than fermenting your coffee in a bag, you have a tank or you can start totally. to measure things. And, yeah. and a good example, like the coffee that's the next exceptional coffee coming out, it's a large scale mill that purchases from small producers. They, they produce tons of coffee, but they have given their mill manager um, his, the ability to purchase his own equipment. So he, mm. he ferments coffee measuring uh, like pH, bricks, temperature, the whole, the whole thing. Cool. He bought um, a pasta dryer, actually. It's like a static dryer that doesn't move it, and he uses <laughs> it to dry coffee. Yeah. So he dries coffee in a totally different way because he has access to this money. It's, it's totally in the dark, too, which he thinks to, tends to have an improvement on the coffee that it's not yeah, exposed to light. Definitely. And it is, his processing is so unique that um, people actually accuse him of flavoring his coffee. Oh, wow. So I'll Jeez. get you some of the coffee. So the, yeah. <laughs> the coffee has distinct notes of cinnamon. Yeah. And there are producers that actually, this is a whole nother conversation where coffee is still such a purist product that you're not supposed to add anything to it. Oh, yeah. And so some producers have added cinnamon or other fruits to their coffee. And uh, it was so bad that he's actually, he had to, he submitted his coffee to a competition and he had to send it to a lab um, actually to get it tested for cinnamon. Yeah. And so to me, it shows what's actually possible if you have full access to mm-hmm. to all the equipment that you need that the these and we have another coffee from that that region that also tastes like cinnamon and it's anaerobic. So there's yeah. this weird thing where like it's a Costa Rican coffee. Is there something in the terroir or the yeasts of Costa Rica yeah. that when they're in uh, anaerobic environment, when they're deprived of oxygen, they produce compounds that taste like cinnamon? And I don't I don't know. Yeah. Um, but to me, that shows like the a little piece of what's possible if more money is allowing the producers to 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 add stuff because i think yeah. right now often the money that goes to producers is generally for them just to get by because that that's the hard yeah. thing is coffee is really like you get most regions you get one harvest yeah so you get you you grow coffee you have to basically you have to stretch your funds until you get that harvest and hopefully you get a good price you get that one lump sum and that's supposed to carry you to the next harvest. And yeah. and it basically a lot of producers end up leaving to other crops that produce more. So a good example is in Bolivia, there's certain regions where you're legally allowed to grow coca. Yeah. And I think coca you can get four harvests a year. Holy so suddenly your income is like, like the same thing like minimum. if I got a paycheck once a year, yeah. I don't I'm going to be honest, like I would run out of money because yeah. it's so hard to figure it out. Totally. But if I had a paycheck four times a year, I'm going to take the paycheck four times a year. And so yeah. this is another huge issue in coffee where like there's just, especially if that producer doesn't have a relationship where they know someone's purchasing their coffee, yeah. they're growing a, a crop completely with with no like faith that they're able to sell it or they don't know how much they're going to be able to sell it for. Yeah. And we often forget about that when we talk about producers where it's like they get paid once a year. That's yeah. it. Yeah, it's so wild. Yeah. It's, <laughs> again, I, I definitely couldn't do it. I, I couldn't uh, do it. I couldn't deal with that lump stem style. I'm, 
I can even deal with getting paid once a month, frankly. Like, <laughs> no, right? I'm glad I have like the bi-weekly <laughs> setup because I just c- could not do it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's so wild. Should we talk more about what this wine tastes like? I yeah, think. yeah. Go for it. Well, I feel like you should go for it. <laughs> yeah. So for, for me, uh, this has like, so P- both Pinot Noir and Zweigelt both have um, dominantly red fruit characteristics. Mm-hmm. Uh, as opposed to black fruit characteristics. So if you see something like Syrah or Cabernet Sauvignon, they tend to have more black fruit. So black plum, blackberry, cassis, or you know something kind of along those lines versus um, both Zweigelt and Pinot Noir tend to, to go more towards like strawberry and cherry and you know things kind of on that end of the spectrum. Uh, and I think this shows that really well, like that really sort of most red plum kind mm-hmm. of like plush, sort of like soft but fresh kind of characteristic to it. There's like a a pleasant like herbal thing for me. I don't Definitely. know if it's like eucalyptus or or something mm. like that. There's that's like on top of all the fruit that's really really nice. Totally. Yeah, for me it's like almost showing like a little bit of like tea or like yeah. sage almost, yeah. like something kind of in that sort of green um but like like sweet green kind of characteristic. Totally. Um which I think is very pleasant. There's definitely like a little bit of funk to it. Yeah. Um but in a really like kind of like again subtle sort of enjoyable way um i've talked to franz before and he, he says that uh he has um sometimes challenges with britannomyces uh which is a specific type of yeast that can create some of those sort of funky characteristics and he's often just like battling those yeah um and i definitely get a little hint of that like britannomyces in this which um again there's a million different descriptors for what it what it smells like um, but it's often attributed to like the barnyardy characteristic. Yeah. Although I don't think this has like aggressively barnyardy. Um, it's definitely got like almost that sort of leathery, sort of like pungent white pepper slash like rhino kind of. Quality, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> like we were talking about earlier. For for me, like that style, yeah. I often just this is maybe because it lets me shotgun all the tasting notes together. Is like kind of cologne. Yeah. Where like a, a like a good cologne to me has like mm. some leathery qualities. It might have like sandalwood. It has like some some herbal notes. And so for me, mm. it often I know that it becomes like a, a very broad term, but totally. it's almost like a note of of cologne where it's like this totally savory yeah. resinous type thing yeah. that all fits together. That's a good that's a good call. I I always use like incense as a tasting note. Yeah. So it's like yeah, this kind of has that sort of. Um, uh yeah like kind of like sandalwoody slash like yeah like that kind of vibe going for it for sure um yeah which i really dig uh bright fresh juicy very pairable you can easily like pair this with pretty much anything because it's only 12 percent alcohol fairly low tannin um britannomyces also adds like a little hint of like bitterness but like not in this case not in a negative way Mm -hmm. um you know i think that means that this wine is not super suitable for like long-term aging those notes get amplified as you age so Britannomyces doesn't tend to like subside it actually gets like more intense as it ages so I think three or four years from now this will once the fruit softens you'll end up with a little more bitterness from the Britannomyces a little more funk um so I think this is definitely like a you know drink now but it's also sub thirty dollars um like Uh really good price to quality ratio he's farming biodynamically as well um all his vineyards are found biodynamically, so he's putting a ton of work into the vineyards. These all have permaculture, so different things growing between the actual vines. Uh, for him, we're looking at things like clover, wild rye, wild mustard, um, things like that that he's actually got growing in the vineyard, which helps combat pests, but also increases the soil health, which he's a huge fan of. 
Um, he did a really weird tasting a couple years ago where you tasted the leaves of the vines next to the wine that it produced. And so like you would taste like a flight of leaves and try and guess like which wine it went with. And did it, uh, is it possible? Oh yeah. He's really? like, yeah. He's like, most people got it like completely right. Uh, he's like, yeah, this vineyard tends to have like more of a chalky quality versus this vineyard is more like ripe and juicy and soft. And like, just by tasting, like literally biting pieces of the leaves, you'd know like what that wine tasted like. That's um, cool. Yeah. We have um, a producer that we purchased from where he walks the farm quite a bit. And mm-hmm. um, in coffee, it's it's different than wine in that like the fruit is basically thrown away and you're consuming the <laughs> seed. And he, he walked totally. his farm enough and he would he would eat the fruit. Yeah. And he found one section of a variety called Typica, which is a fairly common variety. It's prized because it has good cup quality, but it's not like because most of the coffee we drink is closely related to it it doesn't taste incredibly unique mm-hmm. but he found this one typica plant or section that tasted completely different we, we purchased that coffee and the unroasted coffee smells like juicy fruit oh. and the only reason he start separated that that lot is similar to like eating the leaves yeah. he ate the fruit and he noticed that the fruit was so different that he assumed that the seed must also taste different totally. and he doesn't totally know like what makes it different it is still typica but the flavor profile is just completely different and weird weird. and i feel like the only way to start to find those things is when producers are like they're on site they are walking their farms they like really know what's going on with them because otherwise it would have got blended with all the other typicals and it would make that that section fruitier but it wouldn't be as intense and concentrated as that totally i love stuff like that and it's like who knows that's the thing is like it could have been um you know, when they're buying plants, maybe there was like a genetic variation or something mm-hmm. like that. So they just happen to all end up in like that particular area uh, of like a batch of like clonal material that you purchased. Or it could be like, oh, maybe there's uh, like a weird vein of like limestone, you know, underneath or something like yeah. that, uh, which is like creating different water availability or who knows what the situation is. It just could be something completely random, but it's, I love stuff like that where it's, you know it's it's why people feel so like spiritual about wine in some cases where they're like there's no way of possibly explaining this it's like it's it's got to be sort of like beyond our human understanding uh and it's like no wonder people feel that way it does seem pretty miraculous until you really dive deep into it um and even once you do figure out anything at all to do with wine it still feels pretty miraculous uh you know understanding it doesn't make it any less awe-inspiring i would argue um but yeah, that's super cool. Anyways, I feel like we've already been rambling for an hour, uh, <laughs> so you know, I think we'll I think we'll call that the end of uh, at least this segment of the podcast. Hopefully, after this, there will be a segment uh, where we're talking to Ross and B Maloof uh, via Zoom and recording our conversation with them about the final wine for this wine club. If not, you'll just have uh, Mark and I talking, and you'll find out shortly. Uh, regardless, uh, thank you so much for coming out. Really yeah, appreciate thanks for having it. me. Thanks yeah. for the wine. Hey, no delicious. problem. Yeah, happy to always happy to share. Thanks for making me coffee earlier. I appreciate that as well. Um, but yeah, if anybody has any additional questions, uh, you can reach me at eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com. Uh, you know, definitely feel free to, to follow Ben on Instagram, follow Monogram on Instagram. It's a good way of finding out about uh, what, what beans are coming out, first of all, but also... Um, you know, different uh, like coffee brewing techniques. You guys have really great videos, like informational videos on that sort of thing. So there's more and more um, coming too. Yeah. 
yeah so look forward to that uh and yeah let us know what you think of the wines feel free to send us a message uh we'll chat with you soon specifically about the temperance hill that is you know a site for us that like the just the the ripening potential there and yet and also like the ripening curve there are is really remarkable and it's kind of like nothing we've ever seen in any other site so to kind of paint a picture um that wine in your glass is like i mean what does the back, back of the bottle say alcohol wise 13.5 yeah it's totally like 14 too yeah you have definitely sent me something and on my picture i had 14 and then on the back of the bottle it says 13 5 i was like yeah yeah so it's definitely up there but like while it's 14 percent alcohol it you know it's like its ph is like 3.1 and and it has residual sugar and you know what I not mean? Much. Like, like, yeah, not much. It's like three grams or two and a half grams of residual <laughs> sugar, but it's still, it's like, it needs that sugar totally to be balanced. Otherwise it's like really hot and really dry and just kind of all and super acidic. So um, we've just found that having a little sugar there really kind of expresses the wine. Um, and furthermore, like we actually, because of the way that that site ripens, we now actually, with that vintage, or was it 2018 that we first started? No, doing? it was this vintage. Yeah, 20 that vintage we started doing um, uh, that the pick for that block in two picks. Mm-hmm. So we actually get one pick a little bit earlier for that acidity, and then let some of it, you know, get all of like that really ripened pina colada thing going on. Um, and you know, hopefully not make like a fifteen percent alcohol wine. It's like <laughs> totally. a two week difference in yeah. picking. It's not. Yeah. It's not crazy long hang time yeah. afterwards. But yeah, totally. But yeah. we could. It's like one of the few sites in Oregon, other than like monsoon rain coming at. You know, like once the curtain drops, you can't pick anywhere. Um, but <laughs> that site is crazy because it's it's essentially. Um, uh, if you were to like look at a map of like the Oregon wine, I'm just gonna like pretend that you're looking at a map. Like I'm like a, a weather guy. Um, <laughs> so like if you have like the, the oh, I could see myself, this is good. If you have the coastline of Oregon, um, the Willamette Valley is, you know, uh, most of the Willamette Valley growing region is maybe only like, like 30 to 50 miles away from the coast. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly protected by the coastal range itself and that you have that as like kind of like a barrier. Um, so the Willamette Valley in the summer kind of acts like this big like oven. And throughout the day, um, it just gains heat all day because there's not really anywhere for anything to go. And basically there is this sole gap in the coastal range that they call the Van Duzer Corridor. Mm-hmm. And that is this like, this this nice little big chunk that's just a direct a ch- shot to the ocean. Yeah, it's a ju- direct exactly. shot and it's a channel and it literally connects to the valley floor. And that's how the valley floor flooded, and, you know, yeah. m- however many times over millions of years ago. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, but that temperature differential each day essentially creates this like vacuum, I guess, really, where because the ocean air is so much cooler and the valley heats up, basically around the exact same time every day, like, 3 45 in the afternoon um maybe four o'clock um 
all of a sudden that temperature differential um, causes cold ocean air to just get sucked through that channel and it comes ripping up the Aolamity Hills and the like I mean the temperature drops like 10 degrees in like a minute it's insane okay. and it's super windy so it causes the grapes to like um, grow really really thick uh, skins because they have to hold up to the wind um, but it also all that airflow provides a ton of um, relief from like disease pressure, like mildew and rot and stuff. Totally. Um, so that was the really long way of me saying that um, we can ripen fruit really long there. If we want. <laughs> Perfect. <Yeah>. Nailed it. <laughs> Perfect. That wow, amazing? that was that's, a great introduction. No questions only, I've even that's been my asked all, yet. That's my only story. That's all I got. <laughs> That you was my prepared pretty statement. Much everything that like, the Oregon Wine Board requires you to cover, they're like, you have to say the words yeah. Van Duzer Corridor. You no. have to say like Missoula Floods at least. Yeah. Before. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're Actually, like, it's not true because the Oregon Wine Board's um, tagline is Think Pinot, and we don't make Pinots. So, <laughs> oh, my God. Um, That's their. So, yeah. yeah. yeah I, don't, I don't think they like us <laughs> very much. We're like, well, maybe not anymore, but like for the first few years that we were making wine, anytime we were at any sort of tasting event, I can't tell you how many times people would just come up and be like, okay, you're either at Oregon or you know it's an Oregon winery. And they're like, oh, we'll try your Pinot. And I'm like, I have some Gewürztraminer. It's very <laughs> lovely. <laughs> Anyways, questions. You, what, do you, what do you guys want to talk about? I realize this is for your thing. And Ross just like went off about things. No, no, this, this, this is, is awesome. Great. What are you talking about? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this, is, this is perfect. You guys are nailing it right now. Um, yeah, I'd say like, I don't know. Uh, like I would love to talk about like Pinot Gris as sort of a general statement um, would kind of be fun. Uh, you know, something that I can actually edit into the podcast is, is sounds perfect. So. Oh, right. This is a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whatever. I I back everything we said about the Oregon wine board. <laughs> <laughs> That'll um, get edited out. Yeah. yeah. Pinot Gris, Pinot Gris. Well, yeah. I mean, kind of going back to how we don't make Pinot Noir and how we're outsiders pretty much to Oregon. I mean, you know our backstory. We came here from the East Coast. You know, we there's no reason for us to try and compete with anybody who's grown up here and is like, fair enough, probably just like second generation. But there's so many amazing Pinot producers here that that wasn't something that we were really interested in. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of, I don't know, maybe by happenstance, we, we started making Gris and realized wow, you know, like we really love Gris. Um, we really love, you know, Alsatian style Gris and whatnot before we had even come out here. And then we just had the opportunity to get this fruit. And um, it's really interesting because, I mean, I'm sure you know, like Pinot Gris is like a really close genetic mutation from Pinot Noir. I mean, essentially mm -hmm. it's just color. So it's really crazy to us. I think that um, people would imagine that Pinot Noir is like this beautiful grape and it really expresses terroir and it has all of these amazing magical qualities and you wouldn't think that Gris could do the exact same thing. Um, and so, yeah, I think that just kind of started us off on our path of being, you know, Gris fanatics and trying to, to change that, that narrative, I guess. Yeah. And there's, there's like, since then, um, you know, obviously we had like our own personal feelings about the grape and, and the wine that we were making to start, but we kind of stumbled and, and, and snowballed from there because we realized that there was a pretty big um, like economic uh, 
stress situation happening where it was like this weird race to the bottom and especially with Oregon Pinot Gris yeah. because you have um, you have a lot of different like you can look at it from a lot of different angles but you have like multiple pieces all racing each other to the bottom to like basically make worse Pinot Gris and <laughs> that is you know like so starting from the farmer I guess like going grape to shelf you know um, if you're a farmer in Oregon which many winemakers in Oregon uh, it, there are a lot of like kind of um, uh, negotiants, if you will, in Oregon. You know, the the farming community has been here a really long time and wine hasn't. You know, the majority of grapevines in Oregon weren't planted till the 80s with the first commercial vineyards being planted in like the mid to late 60s, but really not many even then. So like B said earlier, we're talking maybe two generations of of Oregon winemaker. And that's only if you're in a winery that was, you know, amongst the first 10, you know, mm -hmm. um, so we're talking like one, one and a half generations of winemakers. And uh, a lot of, a lot of people are, are purchasing fruit from farmers and farmers are, you know, figuring out what to grow, how to grow it and, and how to stay in business because farming is not a, you know, an insanely lucrative business. And so in short, um, in the current climate, if you're a farmer, and you're planting grapes or you're growing grapes that have already been planted, um, you have this situation where let's say you can charge maybe for like really quality Pinot Noir um, that's like organic even, you know, you can maybe charge like three, $3,000, $3,500 for like a ton of grapes. And you can maybe get half of that for Pinot Gris. And same effort, same yeah. amount of work. And yeah, the grapes don't care. You know, it's the it's the exact same amount of money to farm an acre of gris that it is to farm an acre of Pinot Noir. Now, some people definitely try to crop higher so they're getting more off per acre, but but still, then that kind of goes into what B was saying of like, well, if people aren't treating it the same, how could it ever make the same, you know, like quality wine? So you have this like system where there's a lot of pressure on farmers who are occupying high quality vineyard land in Oregon to graft Pinot Gris to literally anything else, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, whatever, because you could charge twice as much for it. Mm -hmm. So you have Pinot Gris as far as plantings being pushed further and further away from you know, these like really high quality sites and getting pushed more towards like the valley floor um, where you know, you're at like, 50 feet elevation and people are cropping you know however many tons to the acre and you know exactly and then it gets into the hands of a winemaker and you talk to a lot of winemakers here in Oregon and they're like I don't even really like Pinot Gris I just need cash flow it's like this answer to like you know like a cash flow problem where you know you make Pinot Noir here and it takes you know 20 months to age it in barrel and then you age it in bottle another six months and so you're going on this cycle of like over two years before getting money back so people use Gris as like a holdover where they're like, oh, we'll just ferment it in stainless steel and release it in February and, you know, no frills, you know, we're making $13 Pinot Gris. And it, then it gets to the consumer and then the consumer says like, Pinot Gris is no frills everyday white wine that I'm going to like take a swig of and pour in my pasta, you know, <laughs> um, which don't get me wrong, that's what we do with our wine, but, <laughs> but but, you know, it's like this weird spiral because, you know, obviously, like B said, Pinot Gris is a genetic mutation of Pinot Noir. Why couldn't it capture all the nuance and, you know, special, you know, qualities from a 
from a site that like Temperance Hill that Pino couldn't. So um, we've been uh, kind of thrust into the like the the front of this fight because we you know we do have a lot of gris out there. We make five single vineyard designations of Pinot Gris, and all from in our minds, what are you know like unique, really awesome. Yeah, sites, like Grand like, Cru quality yeah. sites here in Oregon, you know, and we've had to deal firsthand with, you know, the pressures of, of losing the fruit to grafting. So we've been, you know, working closely with our farmers. Um, sorry, you were going to say something? I was just going to say exactly what you're about to yeah, say. Yeah, um, take it away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah, no, so that, I think that also brings up another, like, topic that something that we're really interested in is obviously um, the site and organic farming in general and working with farmers um, to ensure that we're keeping these sort of like grand crew sites that we see in our mind. So we've actually entered into a ton of negotiations with people that we're close with who farm at like Temp Hill. This was actually, this um, block of fruit was, they were like, hey, we want to graft over to Shard. Like, sorry, like that's what we're going to do. And we're like, wait, 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 wait. Like, what are you going to charge for Shard? We'll pay it. Just yeah. leave these fruit. I was going to say the word cream. negotiations makes okay, it seem like adversarial. <laughs> Take we didn't like money. sit down at a table with a farmer and say like, we're going to beat you up, man. Give me your fruit. <laughs> That's not a good no, thing. we like, we kind of, I guess, went to bat for the grape and yeah. said like, why waste the money on grafting? We'll, yeah. just, we'll just pay you what, the price you were expecting to get for what it was you were going to graft to. Yeah. And knowing that we're going to hit the market with more expensive Pinot Gris, but hopefully, you know, Hopefully they serve a, as, you know, uh, as an example or, you know, there are, there's plenty of serious Pinot Gris here in Oregon. I'm not saying we're like the, you know, like the saviors <laughs> or the only ones making good Pinot Gris, yeah. um, but it is a very real fight that's happening now, you know, and, um, and yeah, so hopefully our, our wines are, I don't know, taken seriously, I guess, but maybe yeah. not. We don't take them seriously. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah pinot gris yeah i guess in the same so like again the sort of common thing that you always hear with pinot gris is like a like it crops like out of control like whenever i've like gone or harvested pinot gris you're like wow you can fit that many grapes on a single vine like this is wild uh and then b people say like if you don't crop that high, then the alcohol gets like way out of control and you end up with these like really flabby wines. Uh, I guess like the two questions are like, like, is that the actual case with Pinot Gris? And if it is the case, how do you combat that to make a wine like this? Obviously we've already talked about site being like a huge factor, but is there anything that you can do from like a farming perspective where you're getting that concentration that you do at lower crop levels, but also not getting like completely blown out sort of fruit necessarily for sure yeah there is a lot to do so you know kind of stepping back from like your first question you know yeah like different um varieties of grapes have different preferences themselves as plants of like you know of just like how prolific they are and what how they really strive you know like plants like gewürztraminer and also you know pinot gris like they like holding more fruit for sure um, and they can, and it's not necessarily, it's a higher threshold than a lot of other grapes for like, you know, crossing a line of like, now you're going to start like losing quality kind of thing. And 
I think that we maybe also fall in the camp of thinking that mm, people overcrop in general, or, or sorry, over um, drop fruit in general. Like, you know, this whole like, we only leave one or two clusters per cane to really <laughs> concentrate, you know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. crazy, you know? Um, but having said that, a big thing, you know, like leading up to, to harvest, a lot of people will go through and, you know, if you look at like a cluster of grapes, you have like the main body of grapes. And then oftentimes you have like a little, like, like a little shoulder, a little side shoot at a the wing. end. A yeah, wing. wing. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people drop that, especially in Pinot for, again, concentration yeah. of flavor. And we just let that ride. Yeah, it's free tartaric acid. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, that's, that keeps the wine bright. And it's, you know, we, we try to do a little bit less, you know, um, rigorous you know like vineyard uh manicuring and uh and kind of just let it be a little bit more we also don't um you know like we don't do crazy leaf pulling on a lot of our sites just to kind of you know like it, it's site to site but for the most part yeah like we probably crop a little higher than what most people do pinot noir yeah. um but it's not adequate we're not doing like six tons to the acre here or anything you know <laughs> Um, we probably average like three and a half tons yeah. an acre, maybe four in one or two sites. Um, we also pick our grapes maybe differently than than a lot of people. So we love high acid wines in general. So we'll pick based off of pH. Obviously, we want it to have that varietal ripeness to it and, and have the characteristics that it needs before we do that. But we don't wait until it's, you know, X percent gram sugar. Um, yeah. We really do pick off of pH. Yeah. Shout out to Hank Beckmeyer. Yeah. Cause um, yeah, cause um, he was the one that taught us to pick out off a of pH. Not yeah. like, not like that. We, I don't want to make it seem like we went and like, you know, like he taught us everything. Um, uh, uh, we had an awesome visit with Hank and Caro um, the year before we started our project and they're really, really close friends. And um, we were talking about the wines that we wanted to make and, and their experiences and that was a huge thing that we came away with was was Hank talking about picking off of pH rather than sugar.